God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. One of the great skills that Christians are given an opportunity to cultivate is the ability to change our minds. Jesus spends lots of time in the Gospels trying to help his disciples and others change theirs. To recognize that their assumptions about the work and the character of the Messiah are not binding on him. That God has the power to work in ways that human beings, even you and I, may not have yet imagined. It's a little bit like discovering that the world is round or that the planets in our solar system orbit around the sun. When we gain new knowledge, we have to adjust our understanding. For Christians, our assumptions have to be challenged and examined constantly in the light of Scripture and in the light of Christ. Which is why it's important that when Jesus speaks in Luke's gospel, we listen. So he's asked about those who have been slaughtered by Pilate or who have died in a sudden accident. What did they do to deserve this? And he answers those questions and then he tells a parable to try to correct a misunderstanding about suffering and the nature of God. Now, this is a problem that is still around, right? No matter what Jesus says, you and I believe that catastrophe is visited on those who deserve it. This comes up frequently in the wake of natural disasters, a hurricane or an earthquake or some kind of sudden calamity strikes. And in the aftermath, the search for answers eventually comes around to the idea that somehow this suffering is a sign of God's judgment, a warning that individuals and nations should repent and return to the Lord or else face similar consequences. And yet here you and I are unrepentant sinners. These assertions are contrary to the teaching of Scripture as well as to our lived experience. Bad things happen to good people all the time, just as often as anyone else. Innocent children are frequently the victims of sudden disaster, just as much as wicked adults. There is no pattern that we can find in such things. Now, as rational creatures, human beings are driven to try to find answers. We want to know that there is an order to the universe and that there is something that we can do to keep ourselves and those that we love safe and happy. But if happiness and safety are all that we want from God, then our God is not the Father of Jesus Christ. The answers that Jesus has for our questions are rarely as convenient and comfortable as we might like. And what he tells the crowd is that the Galileans who Pilate slaughtered and the people of Jerusalem crushed by that falling tower were just good old garden variety sinners. They were not especially wicked. They were not singled out for punishment by God. They did not deserve to suffer and die more than anyone else. And that actually is not very comforting, is it? Jesus is saying that we're all at risk of sudden catastrophe. And that the holiness or the sinfulness of our lives doesn't tip the balance one way or the other toward either sudden death and destruction or long life and happiness. Judgment is coming for all of us. 
But God, in his mercy, sees that we are not punished immediately when we sin, because God makes space for us to repent. Now, Jesus doesn't deny that sin has pernicious consequences. Sin leads to judgment. But he also refuses to draw a clear, straight line between human sinfulness and sudden, unexpected disaster. To live as if a disaster is a kind of punishment for sin visited on those who are secretly, or openly maybe, worse than anybody else, is to walk away from a Christian understanding and get into a dangerous kind of superstition. And that's because disaster and calamity are capricious. They're products of living in a sinful, fallen world that you and I cannot hope to control. And we can't avoid those forces by just being better people. Good and bad people alike suffer without warning. But if that's the case, it means that disaster and judgment don't exist in the same category. They're not the same kind of thing. Because we can't be sure what capricious thing might lurk around the next corner, but we can prepare for judgment. Now, we're often seduced by the idea that there is some kind of secret knowledge out there in the world that we might be able to gain, something that God has not yet revealed to us, an explanation for how and why the world runs as it does, and we look for that secret while ignoring what Scripture tells us are God's promises. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord your God, but the things revealed belong to you and to your children forever. We spend too much time guessing at things that we can't know, and not enough time dwelling on the promises of God. And we should not try to guess at the status of others, or even of ourselves, before God, in light of accidents of history. When bad things happen to us, those thoughts creep in. Is this because of something I've done or said or thought? We are transfixed by the pursuit of the unknowable, trying to discern a pattern or a reason for things that actually belong to God alone. This explains the popularity of internet personality tests of all kinds. Are you an ENFP? I hope not. Uh, I am, it's terrible. Uh, what, what score did you get on the Enneagram? Uh, or, the, or if you take a particular kind of personality trust, are you green or orange? And how does that mean you'll interact with your spouse? Think of the commercials we see constantly now for DNA sequencing services. Ancestry.com will tell you exactly what percentage Eastern European you might be. And perhaps that will explain why you're never able to walk in a straight line on Thursdays. <laughs> or think of things like books like The Secret. Uh, it's right there in the title. Uh, the secret is that you can't know the secret. Um, millions of people, many of them devout believers in Jesus, spend time and money trying to discover things about ourselves and about the world that still remain beyond our ability to comprehend. And the fact is it would be more bearable for us if there was an explanation for everything that happens and why. But the sun rises on the good and the evil. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And no matter how frustrating it might be, there is often not an explanation given. If we seek to know how our lives will turn out or what God intends for us, we should dwell less on the secret things 
and lean instead on the promises, what we know to be true. The promises spoken and given to us through and by Christ, which is a good reminder that we should not spend our lives hoping to avoid death and judgment, but instead preparing for them. As we are reminded somewhat consistently in Lent, this life is not all that there is. What we do in our mortal lives has echoes through eternity, and we will all go before that great judgment seat of the Lord to give an account of how we lived. That's why Jesus tells the parable of the fig tree following so closely after this discussion about the relative good or bad qualities of those who die unexpectedly. A final judgment is coming for all of us, and we should prepare for it like like it might be coming sooner than we might think. The fig tree was fruitless for three years, and that's plenty of time to see that it's not going to bear fruit anytime soon. And so the owner of the vineyard where the tree is planted directs the gardener to cut it down. Why waste time and energy and resources tending a tree that's not going to bear any fruit? If you find yourself nodding along at this point, you may be in a bit of trouble. Because the gardener is not willing to give up so quickly. If three years is said to be a short length of time, he's willing to wait at least one more year. He asks for another 12 months to tend to this tree to care for it, to fertilize and to see if the tree might possibly be able to bear any good fruit at all. But it does not delay this moment of judgment forever. He agrees. If the tree is barren for another year, it should be cut down and discarded. Now this is a parable about the people of God. It's a parable about you and I. We are the fig tree. As individuals, but also surely as the family of God, as the church. And the owner expects that we who have been planted and tended to bear fruit in keeping with our purpose. As a fig tree is meant to bear figs, so we're meant to bear the fruit of repentance and obedience as hearers of the gospel and followers of Jesus. And bearing fruit is a task not just given to church leaders or, thanks be to God, to clergy or to exceptionally strong believers. It's a task for all Christian people. It's important because bearing fruit is a sign that we have heard and obeyed God's word. Not something that can be handled simply by faithful church attendance or by financial giving or volunteerism. Bearing fruit that is in line with the call of Christ requires a constant reorientation of our lives toward the cross and the Lord who hung there. It's his life and example that we have to submit our lives to. That's the test that we have to meet. And it is an uncompromising standard that none of us can hope to meet on our own. And that's just one more reason why Christ gave us the gift of the church, so that we can encourage one another and hold one another accountable and by God's grace be grafted into his new family and our own new identity. But if we are not fruitful, if we are barren, then there will indeed come a time when our lack of fruitfulness will require an explanation. Now, I hope that's not a source of fear, but of hope, because we're not left to face that judgment alone. When the axe is laid at the root of the tree, we have an advocate who promises to intervene on our behalf. The vine dresser takes up our case, 
Our Savior, Jesus Christ, petitions for more time to bring us to fruitfulness. He sees in the withered fig tree and in our withered lives more potential and more promise than anything else. And he is willing to give himself completely to the task of bringing forth fruit from what seems to be a dead and fruitless tree. Now, when we are left on our own without the vine dresser's help, we grow wild and thorny and often fruitless. We take nourishment from sources other than Christ and refuse to be pruned. And we grow twisted, turned in on ourselves through sin and selfishness. But when Christ the vine dresser is allowed to tend to us and to feed us and prune us as we need, we grow strong and we bear good fruit. When we bask in his light and are fed at his table, we're able to bear the fruit that comes from obedience to his design for us. Bearing fruit of this kind and repentance go hand in hand. They're the two respected, expected responses that come from an encounter with Christ. If we hear the word and we believe in him, then we will bear good fruit. And if not, then not. This is how Luke's gospel understands conversion, not as a gradual process of spiritual awakening, not as the discovery of a secret meant just for you, but a choice to break away from a life of sin. That break means the end of producing sinful fruit or no fruit at all, and a new life full of the fruitfulness that comes from knowing Christ. Now, that new life doesn't just happen. It requires a change. It requires some kind of a break and a turn away from old ways toward abundant life in God, animated by the presence of his Holy Spirit. And that new life bears visible fruit that others can see. As Paul describes it in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Christian life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the signs that we've heard the word and obeyed it. Now, who in your life would you say bears that fruit? We live in a world where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are in short supply. And yet those are the virtues that we are called to embody. We live just as the fig tree does in a world made possible only by God's grace and God's patience. And if God were not so gracious and patient, if punishment for sin was swift and immediate, who among us would be able to stand? Let him without sin cast the first stone. But instead of acknowledging that God is the source of all our life and all our hope, you and I often try to convince ourselves and others that the world is a meritocracy with rewards for good behavior and punishments for bad behavior. As if all we get is what's coming to us, what we have earned. And we live as if salvation is a kind of divine pat on the back. And if we understand ourselves to be sinners, if you're willing to grant the premise that maybe you have sinned, we believe that we've somehow done enough to earn a reprieve from the judgment that we see others suffering under. But not so. God offers us grace. Grace that we cannot earn and grace that we know we do not deserve. 
Grace that will not let the fruitless fig tree or the fruitless Christian be cut down and burned up. And that is to our great comfort. The vine dresser will not abandon us. Instead, he will go in our place for our sake. This is, in fact, what happens on the cross. The Lord of life goes in our place and is pushed out of the world, driven outside the walls of the city, thrown onto the trash heap of suffering and death, beaten and bloodied and broken. The foolishness of God, the folly of the cross, is that Jesus becomes sin for us. He takes the punishment that is rightfully ours and is relegated to the dump, tossed out with the garbage, made into manure on our behalf. And like manure, he is poured out so that something new can grow. He pours himself out to put down roots of resurrection, to bring forth fruit from the withered tree of our human hearts. And his promises are true. The promise that is revealed to us shines like a bright burning bush. God has come to us in the person of Christ, not with an answer for the problem of pain or an explanation for the suffering of innocence or a secret way to escape from the pain of the world, but in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, God comes to us and reminds us that he has heard our cries And he promises to enter fully into our anguish, to take it on bodily, to know our pain from the inside. God remembers us and chooses us, and crucially, God forgives us. Christ, the patient vine dresser, pleads on behalf of every tree and every one of us, even those that seem to be dead and dried up and useless. He stands with us in the time of our trial, and pours out his life for ours. Repentance and obedience are the proper response to the proclamation of this truth. We need not go scouring for other answers, for secret knowledge that will comfort us and solve the problems that we see in the world, because God has already made the promise that we need. I have seen your affliction. I have heard your cries, and I will come to deliver you. Amen.